Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this one hour long discussion today. We are pleased to have Daniel Pipes, the president and founder of the Middle East Forum, Cynthia Farahat, an Egyptian-American author of The Secret Apparatus, being discussed today, and political analyst, and Jonathan Chanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, join us to discuss focusing on the Muslim Brotherhood as revealed in a new book. Each of our guests will speak for about 10 minutes, then answer questions from our audience. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. Please be sure to indicate who you would like your, address, your question addressed to for this webinar. And with that, we will begin with a summary of Cynthia Fairhat's latest book from Daniel Pipes. Thank you, Stacy, and good afternoon to our audience. I'm pleased to discuss The Secret Apparatus, The Muslim Brotherhood's Industry of Death, uh, written by Cynthia Farhat and just out a month or so ago. In the book, Ms. Farhat argues that the Muslim Brotherhood, or sometimes MB, established on March the 22nd, 1928, almost a century ago, presents a far greater threat than is usually perceived being nothing less than the world's incubator of modern Islamic terrorism. She also calls it the world's most dangerous militant cult. She argues that the Muslim Brotherhood began modern Islamism and that it was the first covert Islamic terrorist organization in modern history. <clears throat> she traces both leading Egyptian and non-Egyptian groups back to the MB, including Hamas, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS. With such an array of accomplishments, she concludes that the MB presents an existential threat to the United States. Those not alarmed by the MB, in brief, Ms. Farahat wants urgently to alarm. I shall review four aspects of the book. It's the MB's background influences, the MB's founder, its impact, and US policy. To make the narrative flow more smoothly, I will not indicate when I'm quoting her text, but I will be quoting her text quite a bit. Now, for one, background influences of the Muslim Brotherhood. She sees two main sources. First, Iran and the Shiite branch of Islam, a bit surprising given that the Muslim Brotherhood is very staunchly Sunni. The medieval assassins served as the biggest influence on the Brotherhood's formation, she argues. The founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan al-Banna, drew heavily on this legacy to create a 20th century equivalent of the order of the assassins. She reports the surprising news that uh, in 1938, Ayatollah Khomeini visited Banna in Cairo. Khomeini apparently suggested the wording of the MB's famous slogan, Islam is the solution. Ms. Farhat concludes that the Muslim Brotherhood and Iranian co cooperation is one of the most dangerous and complicated relationships in the world of international politics, jihadism, and transnational terrorism. The second background, besides Iran and the Shiite branch, is modern Western ideas and institutions, totalitarian ones, especially the Nazis and the Soviets. Although Banna admired Hitler and the MB personnel continued to adhere to Hitler's values until today, she argues that Stalin had the most influence on the MB structure which copied both his domestic and international institutions of power, as well as the model of the Comintern. Indeed, Banna modeled his organization after Stalin's governing apparatuses, a structure still used by the Muslim Brotherhood today. So that's part one on the deep background. The second topic is Hassan al-Banna, the founder. Uh, he uh, was born in, I believe, 1906 and was murdered assassinated in 1949. Uh, although long dead, 73 years, his paranoid, obsessive, and criminal vision, she writes, endures through the chameleon-like entity that he created. He stressed two themes that still remain powerful today, the caliphate and death, the attraction of death. On the caliphate, the Muslim Brotherhood's raison d'etre is to establish an Islamic caliphate that will apply the Islamic law, the Sharia. That is because for the Brotherhood, as for many other Islamists, the answer to every problem from trouble with their in-laws to health issues to public policy concerns 
is the return of the caliphate. Remember, Islam is the answer, whatever your question might be. Secondly, Ramana's renowned definition of the Muslim Brotherhood's principles hints at his peculiar preoccupation with death. That um, principle, that famous definition is God is our goal, the prophet is our model, the Quran is our law, jihad is our path, and martyrdom is our aspiration. A memorably perverse article by Banna discusses the glory of dying for Islam. Quote, Muslims will not be saved from their reality unless they adopt the Quran's philosophy of death and embrace it as an art, a truly beautiful art, unquote. When you mix them together, the influence of the assassins, Stalin and Banna, created an organization summed up by Banna's statement that, quote, the laws and teachings of Islam are a total system complete unto itself as the final arbiter of life in this world and the hereafter, unquote. Turning to the impact, well, in part, the Muslim Brotherhood is noteworthy for its acts of violence, in particular in the old days, the assassination of Egypt's prime minister in 1945, a former prime minister in 1948, President Anwar Sadat in 1981, and it almost assassinated Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president of Egypt, in 1954. But she argues that its lawful efforts, its working through the system, has been even more damaging than its violence. The first four presidents of Egypt, Muhammad Naguib, Nasser, Sadat, Hosni Mubarak, were all members. Mohammed Hussein Tantawi, who carried out the coup d'etat in 2011 on the Muslim Brotherhood's behalf, was probably a member as well. And of course, after him came Mohammed Morsi, who ruled Egypt in 2012 to 13, who was publicly and famously a member. And indeed, he'd been chosen by the MB to run for president. In a very key appointment, Morsi made Abdel Fattah Sisi his Minister of Defense relying on the fact that Assisi came from Muslim Brotherhood royalty, being a descendant of MB co-founder Abbas Assisi. Under Morsi, things changed radically, with the MB becoming openly jihadist. The group installed torture and murder tents or camps across Egypt. With this, however, the MB finally went too far. Widespread, indiscriminate torture and murder carried out by the Brotherhood resulted in wide opposition to it, spurring the largest political rally in all of history, so far as I know, on June 30th, 2013, followed immediately by a revolution headed by none other than Assisi. Then, against nearly all expectations, <clears throat> excuse me, Sisi turned on the Muslim Brotherhood and became Egypt's first anti-MB president. When the MB refused to accept this reality, instituting a wave of violence against the new regime, Sisi responded in December 2013 by designating it as a terrorist organization. In all, Ms. Farhat concludes, from 1952 to 2012, each of Egypt's transitions of power resulted from a coup d'etat by military officers belonging to the Muslim Brotherhood. More than that, much of this era they were the power behind decision-making. The Muslim Brotherhood members were the power behind decision-making, and indeed, they dominated the country. It's worth mentioning that outside of Egypt, the MB also wields extensive power. I shall skip details in the interests of time, but I'll just mention a few names. Amin al-Husseini, the notorious Mufti of Jerusalem, the Taliban of Afghanistan, Omar al-Bashir in Sudan, the blind sheikh, Omar Abdurrahman, Tunisians who were behind the so-called Arab Spring, and last but not least, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the current president of Turkey. Turning finally to US policy, Ms. Farhad is dismayed to see that MB deceptions have succeeded in pulling the wool over American politicians' eyes. She argues that misguided Western policy vis-a-vis -vis the MB has contributed to hundreds of thousands of deaths and a displacement of 2.7 million people by the Muslim Brotherhood's regime in Sudan alone, Sudan alone. Furthermore, the riots and protests that erupted across the Middle East in 2011, so-called Arab Spring, were a direct result of a lenient US policy toward the Muslim Brotherhood. 
She believes that to sustain security and freedom to thrive internationally, Washington must criminalize the Muslim Brotherhood by designating it a terrorist organization. Her over two decades of research on the Muslim Brotherhood has led Cynthia Farhad to a horrified appreciation of its achievements as one of the world's most complex criminal enterprises. Her book makes a compelling case to see the NB not only as one of many contending Islamist organizations, but a historic trailblazer and the source of untold misery. Thank you. Thank you. And now we're going to turn it over to Cynthia Farhat to discuss what she means by the secret apparatus. Uh, thank you very much uh, for hosting this webinar. And thank you, Dr. Pipes, for a fantastic uh, summary and for writing the foreword uh, to my book. Uh, the reason I decided to write a book about the secret apparatus is because simply there isn't a book about the secret apparatus of the Muslim Brotherhood in English. Um, this uh, uh, is the name of their terror organ, which they have borrowed from Stalin's power apparatuses. But Stalin had a general department and a general apparatus and a covert secret apparatus or special apparatus, which is exactly what the Muslim Brotherhood calls its terrorism wing. When the Muslim Brotherhood discusses uh, their uh, the secret apparatus with Westerners, they always say, oh, it's a thing of the past. Uh, sometimes they say this, they dismantled it in the 40s. Sometimes they say the 50s or the 60s. Uh, that's what they say when they are communicating with their Western targets. Uh, on the other hand, they do the Arafat thing. They tell the truth when they speak in Arabic. They boast about the existence of the terrorism apparatus. Uh, they boast most about its involvement in transnational terrorism. Uh, I have uh, utilized um, predominantly the words of the Muslim Brotherhood and their writings and their public speeches to make the case that they are the incubator of modern Islamic terrorism. Um, I actually struggled to find a Sunni terrorist group that was not directly involved with the Muslim Brotherhood. They were either involved in founding it or founding and operating it, such as uh, such most famous of these groups, of course, is Hamas and actually Al-Qaeda. Uh, the three members of Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahri, Osama bin Laden and Abdullah Azam were all card-carrying members of the Muslim Brotherhood until the day they died. That's why I believe that 9-11 was a Muslim Brotherhood operation. I also uncover in my book the founding document of Al-Qaeda. It's generally um, believed that it started uh, in the mid 80s, and that is correct in terms of the organized operational aspect. But actually the idea behind Al-Qaeda uh, was, I found it uh, in the dissertation of the blind Sheikh Omar Abdurrahman, who died in 2017 in federal prison in the US for his role in the World Trade Center bombings in the 90s. Uh, in his dissertation from Al-Azhar University for his, for his PhD, he explicitly said that they need to found a group like Al-Qaeda. He also mentioned another group, uh, Al-Jama'a Al-Islamiyya or Islamic group. This dissertation, he finished it in 1971 and he was granted it with the, his PhD with the highest honors. And shortly afterwards, uh, the group Al-Jama'a Al-Islamiyya was established. And later, another group bearing the name Al-Qaeda 
was also established. Uh, this uh, is a trend that Islamists use uh, to get legitimacy is to go to internationally claimed uh, universities to uh, get uh, their dissertations uh which are terrorism manifestos and it gives them huge organizational advantage over uh anyone else uh who is engaged in islamic terrorism now the secret apparatus remains intact and operational and it is indeed the governing body of the muslim brotherhood according to their own words according to the words of international brotherhood leaders Hassan al-Turabi, who died in 2016. He himself acknowledged that the Muslim Brotherhood uh, is governed by the secret apparatus because they have discovered to be able to control this murderous uh, criminal entity they had to rule it themselves. So the public apparatus or the general apparatus or the P is it's just a PR front for the more important covert operation. Under the secret apparatus, there is also an international apparatus, which the Muslim Brotherhood calls the vanguards of organized invasion. Um, they literally call it this way. And they operate in the United States and in the vast majority of Western nations. Uh, the each uh, secret apparat, each Muslim Brotherhood chapter in each of these countries has a secret apparatus leader and an international apparatus leader, and they are all bound by the bylaws of the Muslim Brotherhood. Some of the Brotherhood propagandists say, oh, the Muslim Brotherhood chapters in each country are independent. This is not true. According to the Muslim Brotherhood's own bylaws, I have personally been offered a bribe, a bribe to say that, to say that talking point, that they are independent chapters, which is absolutely not true. Moreover, according to the secret apparatus bylaws, before a member of the Muslim Brotherhood embarks on starting a new jihadist group, he has to fake uh, that he severed ties with the Muslim Brotherhood. That's why when you hear about uh, the, the leader of uh, Islamic State, ISIS or ISIL, whatever you want to call it, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, they say he's a former member of the Muslim Brotherhood. I do not believe that because according to their bylaws, they have to say that they're former members. Also, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, uh, the terrorist who was involved in Jamaat al-Tawheed wal-Jihad, uh, also is allegedly a former member of the Muslim Brotherhood, but I do not also believe so. Uh, that is a pattern of behavior that they adopt before they start uh, a new terrorist group. They also adopt the same strategy in their uh, non-governmental organizations. When one is discovered, for example, for its engagement in illegal activities, it instantly uh, changes its names, changes its public uh, facades with one of the secret apparatuses, many deputies, and they it's it, and and this is going on inside the United States of America. Actually, uh, two weeks after my book was released, a man that I mention in my book, whom I believe is the most uh, pr prominent terror recruiter on the planet, uh, resides in Manhattan, activated Al-Qaeda cells internationally, including the United States of America. But you do not hear that in the news, and you, uh, this is breaking news. Uh, people do not know about that because I'm the one who intercepted it and heard it on his Arabic uh, videos. Uh, this man is allowed to operate with impunity, calling for beheadings and incredibly gruesome uh, things that I do not feel comfortable repeating. Uh, but it's 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 a problem 
that the United States is currently harboring these people and they are operating with impunity. This gentleman once even said that he said, I, Bahagat Saber, am sitting here calling for decapitation and law enforcement can't do anything about it. He's calling for the decapitation of the uh, dissidents and, and people who are against the Muslim Brotherhood, such as myself, and murdering their families. So we have a serious problem where they have been designated as a terror group in a lot of Arab and Islamic countries, and they are at the same time operating with impunity inside the United States of America. There is a famous document that was discovered by the FBI in 2004 called the Explanatory Memorandum. There is something that a lot of experts missed in that very, very important document. They refer to something called the special work. What the special work means, it's a code for the special apparatus, which is another word for the secret apparatus. That document proves that the secret apparatus is indeed operational inside the United States of America. Um, and uh, it has laid out their uh, aspects and, and their mission. And sadly, the most disturbing part about the Muslim Brotherhood isn't only their engagement in violence, but the most disturbing aspect is what they call which is civilization jihad operation. And they define it as destroying their the Western miserable house from within by their own hands and by the hands of the believers. So the covert operation of civilization jihad entails also according to the bylaws of the secret apparatus that they should view themselves as soldiers and in every profession they have uh, to report the secrets of their trade to the intelligence apparatus. The Muslim Brotherhood is the uh, most uh, sophisticated criminal enterprise in the world, according to my opinion. Thank you. All right, thank you so much. Now we're going to turn to Jonathan Shanzer, who will address the ways in which the US government should approach the Muslim Brotherhood. Thank you very much. I uh, really want to thank uh, Daniel uh, and the Middle East Forum uh, for inviting me. Uh, as many of you know, I, I worked for the forum, uh, gosh, almost 20 years ago now uh, and cut my teeth in, in the think tank world. Uh, now I'm uh, based here in the swamp and uh, I, I still have Daniel to thank for much of what I've learned. Uh, I want to commend Cynthia as well for uh, really a fascinating book, a remarkable book. As I was reading it, I couldn't help but to think a bit about uh, the Richard P. Mitchell book, The Society of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, published in 1969. It was, um, I think, considered for, for maybe from up until now to be one of the most authoritative uh, books on the topic. Um, I think that those who study the Muslim Brotherhood are going to have their work cut out for them going back and reviewing the documents that Cynthia has presented. Uh, there is a lot of material, a lot of which I was not familiar with. Uh, and I suspect that there is a uh, a whole cohort of academics who will find it challenging now uh, to dispute some of what Cynthia has laid out in her book. Um, I want to talk for a little bit uh, today about uh, the uh, binary discussion that takes place in this town about the Muslim Brotherhood. Every few years, uh, we get into another discussion, another debate about whether or not the Muslim Brotherhood should or should not be designated as a terrorist organization. I remember actually sitting uh, at the Treasury Department as a terrorism finance uh, analyst. At the time, I was working on Al-Qaeda and Hamas, two groups uh, that drew inspiration at minimum uh, from the Muslim Brotherhood. And there was an attempt to try to document uh, the, mother, the Muslim Brotherhood's connections uh, and responsibility for terrorist attacks and terrorist organizations around the world. Obviously, that did not reach fruition. And uh, I think there were a number of analysts at the time that uh, found it deeply frustrating. We know that this was something that was revived again uh, during the Trump era, uh, where for several years there was an interesting debate, uh, I think perhaps uh, prompted in, in large part by uh, the United Arab Emirates and, this, uh, and Saudi Arabia 
for example, these are two countries that had close ties with Donald Trump uh, and had some influence over uh, his foreign policy. Um, at the end of the day, though, um, no matter what one thinks of uh, the Brotherhood, it comes down to a couple of very simple uh, prongs that one must look at in terms of uh, determining U.S. policy. The Justice Department, Treasury Department, State Department um, all must adhere to the following, and that is, is the group engaged in uh, uh, terrorist activity? Uh, is it engaged in financial support for terrorist groups? Is it engaged in technical support for terrorist groups? Or does their material support, and by that it could really be any kind of support, um, in-kind donations, um, uh, website assistance, uh, even rhetorical assistance. And there I think the material support is probably the easiest thing to point to, but that's never the single prong uh, through which a decision is made. Um, and so what we need to do is go back and, and take a look uh, at the broader organization to make a determination whether the entire Muslim Brotherhood meets this criteria. There, I think the U.S. government has balked time and again. Um, and I think the reason for that is that uh, different groups, uh, while they may be interconnected, well, I think that is 100% true, uh, as Cynthia has just explained, uh, and that many of the groups believe in, uh, in, in the same ideology, or have the same goals at the end of the day in terms of uh, attacking the West or eroding Western society. Uh, I think there are different flavors, if you will, for the different groups. And by this, I mean that uh, some have more openly embraced violence than others. Others are more secretive about it. Um, perhaps um, there, there are groups that are more interested in financing terrorism than engaging it or incubating um, individuals that could be uh, deployed to various terrorist groups such as ISIS or Al-Qaeda or the Taliban as already discussed. The problem is, of course, that if we cannot prove that they are engaged in these acts of violence, if we cannot prove that they are engaged in uh, the financial support for terrorist organizations, I think that's where our bureaucrats get tripped up. I do believe, of course, that there is an ideological component to this, that folks at the State Department and elsewhere in the, U in the U.S. bureaucracy are not interested in doing this. There has long been a fear of, uh, well, we shouldn't provoke uh, the Middle East, we shouldn't provoke Islamists uh, across the region, uh, this will only make them more radical. This has been the sort of circular thinking that I think has plagued uh, the U.S. bureaucracy for, uh, for decades. Uh, certainly, when one goes back and looks at the founders uh, or, or the most prominent figures within the Muslim Brotherhood over the decades, whether it's Hassan al-Banna, whether it's Said Qutb, or even Yusuf Kardawi, I think we can, we can see rather clearly where the organization is ideologically. But unfortunately, ideology is not what determines designation. So uh, let me just briefly explain where I think we can do more. Um, given that I don't think the bureaucracy is going to move uh, in any significant direction, certainly not over the next two years and, and maybe not for the foreseeable future. Um, look, first of all, we have groups that have been designated um, by our uh, State Department and by the U.S. Treasury. Uh, one was a group called Hassam. This was a recent group that was designated out of Egypt. Uh, very strong connections to the Muslim Brotherhood and proven to engage in violent activity. And it was therefore designated by the U.S. government, a very positive step, in my view. Another one is the Wa'athawra, um, another group that's Egyptian, strong ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, proven to be engaged in violence. And again, this is something that uh, the Treasury Department and, and, uh, and state were able to move quickly on. You go further back in time, and of course, you can point to Hamas. This is the Palestinian offshoot um, of the Muslim Brotherhood. Of course, the Muslim Brotherhood still exists within Palestinian society. This is the more, again, we talk about the manifestation of violence. Hamas certainly uh, has embraced it rather openly, uh, making it rather easy. I think from there, it's important that we begin to look at the individuals and entities that have provided support to these organizations, um, looking deeper into their networks, not just the groups themselves, but to the supporters of these groups, is where I think the analysis will often yield uh, uh, new individuals, new charities, new entities.
we could target here in the United States. There are, I think, in my view, two groups that have engaged in violence in the past uh, that uh, have already made their slip-ups, so to speak, where uh, they have uh, barely tried to cover up their violent uh, actions, if not intent. Uh, Hezbollah Watan in uh, Libya and the Islah Party in Yemen are two that come to mind. These, are, they, these have uh, individuals that have been either linked to violence uh, or linked to more violent groups uh, in terms of uh, providing support, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and Al-Qaeda in particular. The interconnection of these groups is also something that I think is really worth digging into. And once we've identified that there is a group that should be designated, we should be looking at the ways in which they support one another. And this is where I think uh, Cynthia's book really highlights this, is that these groups are not independent that they see themselves as part of a broader network that are there to help one another. They don't see the boundaries that we do um, in the state system that exists today. Um, and it's for that reason that I think there is a lot of research to be done uh, to identify additional entities that are worthy of designation. Let me talk about state support for a minute. Um, there are two countries in particular that I think have emerged in recent years as the avowed uh, open sponsors of the Muslim Brotherhood, the funders uh, and political facilitators of the Muslim Brotherhood worldwide. One is Turkey and the other one is Qatar. Now, it's interesting that Qatar in recent years has actually drawn down, I think, after the uh, Gulf spat between the Saudis and the Emiratis, Bahrainis and Egyptians, where they singled out Qatar for their support of the Muslim Brotherhood um, and uh, singled them out for their financing of the Muslim Brotherhood, among other terrorist organizations around the world. We've actually seen a much more quietist Qatar. And I think that there is a lesson to be learned there, that it is actually possible for the region to isolate the funders and supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood. And it would be very interesting to see what that meant in terms of funding and other support. Turkey is another country that I think has come under fire, not enough fire, in my view, uh, for its open support of the Muslim Brotherhood. You see a lot of people who have escaped uh, from the uh, the Sisi regime, which has been cracking down on the Brotherhood. They've moved to Turkey. They are extremely active there. They've got media outlets and PR outfits and, um, and a, a range of other influence groups operating out of Turkey. And I think that uh, U.S. scrutiny should be placed on Turkey for exactly this reason. And the designation of entities inside Turkey could prove useful. We've actually actually seen the designation of a number of Hamas activists in Turkey today. It's had an impact on how much Turkey is willing to go out publicly in support um, of the Brotherhood and of Hamas itself. There are other countries that I think we could also focus on, Malaysia being one, Iran being another. Of course, Iran is already heavily sanctioned, and we can only hope that it will sustain additional pressure from the U.S. government. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think pointing out these countries' support for the Muslim Brotherhood as part of actions taken, maybe not as the primary reason for doing so, could be extremely helpful. The last thing I'll note, of course, is that there was a state sponsor of, of terrorism that was a Muslim Brotherhood government. Uh, we've already mentioned them today, and that is Sudan. Uh, that has That's a government that has since pulled away uh, with help from the Saudis uh, and from the Emiratis, which I think is a remarkable uh, again, testament to the to the way in which the Middle East can uh, begin to tamp down on the kind of support that we see at state levels. One thing that I'll just note here that I think we should be doing in the U.S. government uh, as I wrap up here, I believe that the Muslim Brotherhood should be designated as a hate group. In the instances where we're not able to identify evidence that points to direct support for violence or financial support for violence or engaging in violence itself, we can undoubtedly point to the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood's ideology is a hate ideology, not unlike the KKK uh, here in the United States. If we are now in a post-January 6th environment targeting groups like the Proud Boys and other white nationalists and neo-Nazi groups, there is no reason why we should not also be targeting other hate groups uh, that are pervasive here in the United States. And then finally, I would just say that these hate groups 
um, there could be real utility in identifying them as such because these groups, uh, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood or, or splinters thereof, are very active in terms of political donations on the Hill right now. We see a good deal of that in ways that I think are very troubling. Um, uh, individuals that have been involved in 501c3 organizations that were shut down by the U.S. government have now resurrected new 501c3s and they're getting tax-deductible donations uh, with an open nod from the U.S. government despite their troubling background of engagement with hate groups and groups that have been involved in violence. So I think there's a lot of work to be done here in Washington. I don't expect there to be a lot of unanimity of thought uh, at this time. We obviously see a lot of partisan differences over this, but I think that we still can adhere to the principles already uh, laid out for the designation of various violent groups and support groups for terrorist organizations. And once again, focusing on that hate group mentality could actually uh, perhaps uh, give us an inkling of uh, where the future may go in terms of enforcement against some of these um, uh, rather nasty groups that Cynthia has highlighted in her excellent book. I'll stop there and I thank you. All right, thank you all. And I will ask all of our panelists to start their videos so that way we can get to our questions. All right, the first one is from Lev Citrin. Uh, this question is for any panelists that would care to comment. The Muslim Brotherhood is obviously rooted in ideology. I always have to remember that. Uh, exactly like communism or Nazism. Uh, but there is a difference with our in our reaction. While the West was not afraid to debunk Marx and Hitler's ideas, we stay away from directly criticizing the underpinning ideology of Islamism, uh, but only the violent actions of its followers. Why such restraint? I, I think the reason is because the Muslim Brotherhood has uh, weaponized uh, Islam and uh, has uh, made it a, uh, a Islamophobic uh, hate crime to uh, criticize their ideology and its underpinnings. And they have hijacked the representation of Muslims in Western countries. I get constant messages from Muslims who are telling me that they are terrified of speaking out because sometimes they even get uh, beaten up in mosques, they get physically assaulted, they get threatened, they could lose their jobs. Uh, so incredibly, uh, the Muslim community inside the United States and in the West is terrified of them. And uh, they're hiding behind religion and religious freedom is sacred in America. Oh, Mr. Pipes, would you like to Uh, I would agree uh, with the last part. I think communists and Nazis also threatened those who disagreed with them, but the religious aspect makes it different. It was much easier to criticize political movements with that, that had no religious content than it is a political movement that has religious content. I'll maybe just add uh, something briefly here, and that is that uh, in the aftermath of 9-11 and the debates that emerged, uh, we saw heavy engagement on the part of Muslim Brotherhood activist groups or Muslim Brotherhood adjacent groups uh, with the Department of Homeland Security, with the FBI, the Department of Justice, um, really trying to set the edge in terms of norms and engagement. We see a lot of lobbying on the Hill, um, and they've been very effective. Somehow, uh, our bureaucracy has allowed this to take place. We welcome them, welcome them in. In fact, we see it in our education system as well. It's highly problematic about the influence that they wield. Uh, but one of the things that I've noted, which has been fascinating to me, is the extent to which they're active in the media. Um, I, watching this past summer, uh, while uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad was uh, engaging in war with Israel for a weekend, um, I noted that, that the media was actually rather silent. But if you compare that to the war in which Hamas was fighting Israel in 2021, it was remarkable, the difference. Um, and so there is a full apparatus that swings into action uh, when the Muslim Brotherhood calls upon it. And uh, I think that is something that uh, needs uh, further study. Absolutely. And Lisa Bernard actually asked that uh, on that line, Stalin's 
uh, conducted much propaganda in host countries as it did in assassinations and other violent acts, what kind of propaganda does the Muslim Brotherhood conduct? Uh, so the Muslim Brotherhood is extremely savvy when it comes to propaganda. Uh, Egypt uh, under Nasser uh, uh, regime uh, in the 1950s has hosted a lot of Nazi war criminals and they gave them control of uh, the television and uh, uh, radio state uh, 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 apparatuses. And also they helped, uh, Nazis helped the Egyptian education system so that they would be able to uh, export the type of people who would be they would be the Muslim Brotherhood and their ilk would be able to recruit to their ideas. So I believe they are the best propagandists on earth. They also in their documents discuss that they always like to uh, ledge on whatever the grievance du jour is, if it's racism, if it's intersectionality, if it's whatever it is, they like to identify five themselves as proponents against racism while they have incredibly racist uh, uh, philosophies in the writings. So I believe uh, they are the greatest uh, group when it comes to uh, propaganda. They've targeted, uh, like you said, the media, like, I'll give you an, a horrific example that's in my book. One of the gentlemen uh, who is affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood called uh, Amr Waked, he acted in movies such as Lucy and Syriana. Now, Amr Waked is affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. And if you Google him in Arabic, you can see his involvement in what was called the Muslim Brotherhood slaughterhouses, holding a camera and interrogating a beaten, kidnapped individual whom the Muslim Brotherhood uh, suspected was uh, a dissident. So that's actually on video. The man is on video committing these horrific acts and yet, he is able to act in Hollywood uh, it, and also, like you said, in academia. We currently have a self-confessed mass murderer uh, and a, a professor at Manhattan College. Uh, it's uh, it's it's they're so successful. It's I, I don't think Nazis even came anywhere or the Soviets came anywhere close to where these guys are. Thank you so much. And speaking of academia, Judy Hirshon, as well as Stephen Orlo, ask about any influence that they exert over the American university campuses, uh, perhaps through such groups as the Students for Justice in Palestine. Maybe I'll, I'll take a quick crack at that. Um, we did a, a study uh, here at FTD several years ago. Uh, we did a deep dive into the BDS movement, looking for any connections that we might find to terrorist groups. Um, and actually, what we found was that SJP was uh, incubated uh, by a group named, uh, known as a uh, uh, AMP, American Muslims for Palestine. When we look at the leadership of American Muslims for Palestine, we found that uh, a great number of their leaders, not all of them, but a number of them had been involved in other charities in the past, uh, uh, such as the Holy Land Foundation, such as Kind Hearts. Uh, and other groups that have been shut down by the U.S. government. And so we can certainly draw a line. It's not a direct line. It's uh, maybe one or two steps removed. Uh, but certainly you have Muslim Brotherhood groups that have influenced, by, in fact, you know, uh, groups that have been uh, involved in uh, and actually even uh, brought to uh, court here in the United States or shut down by the U.S. Treasury or by the FBI for their support for Hamas. Uh, and they have connections back to what's happening on campus today. So uh, it's amazing to me that this is something that's not more widely known. I'm very happy to share that information. We've testified before Congress about it, uh, but it's just simply not been picked up on that uh, SJP has its roots in uh, Hamas charities here in the United States. Would anyone else like to chime in before we move on? 
Okay, so Benjamin Barrett asked, the Muslim Brotherhood has experienced setbacks across the uh, Middle East, North Africa region over the past decade. From its defeat and isolation in Egypt, a loss of authority in Libya and Anada's loss of power in Tunisia, how will the Brotherhood respond to this marginalization? So the way they respond with uh, marginalization, uh, it's what they call uh, the theology of mehna or the theology of crisis. And this means every time, according to their words, they are faced with a significant crisis, they do two things. Uh, the first thing is they go even more underground in their covert work. And they also activate jihad uh, and they do it under ostensibly different banners. So these are their two mode of operations that they utilize and have always utilized historically and in modern times uh, when they are under attack or face crisis. Thank you so much. And Jonathan, you, you mentioned designated uh, the Muslim Brotherhood as a hate group versus a terrorist, terrorist group. Can you just talk about the differences and, and what the outcomes would be there? Yeah, I mean, look, we have uh, a designation process that um, is very well established at this point. It's more than 20 years old. And I talked about the prongs uh, that, that are used by the Justice Department in particular in determining whether a group meets criteria. So if they've engaged in violence, okay, you know, that's one. Uh, financial support, technological support, material support. If we can't identify uh, various Muslim Brotherhood groups or the entire organization as having engaged in this activity directly, or if the U.S. government refuses to look at the broader uh, uh, umbrella organization and, and insists upon some of these smaller groups, well, then I think we, we probably need to think uh, again, about how we approach this. And that's where I think a hate group um, uh, designation of sorts, I could imagine that this is something that could be done by the State Department. I mean, we have norms in this country that, you know, the KKK is not uh, invited into our political process. Uh, we have people right now on the Hill who are trying to make sure uh, that uh, groups that were supportive of the January 6th insurrection are also outside of the norms, outside of the way that we operate here in Washington. I think there is probably a mechanism that could be created primarily by the State Department, maybe by the FBI, where we identify certain ideologies as being antithetical to the American ethos. Um, and to make it clear that while you know people can you know, they can think what they want. It's a free country in that way, but that they're not welcomed in the system. And that might be a deterrent for members of Congress to meet with these people, let alone take the kinds of uh, donations that continue to flood into Capitol Hill. Uh, it might make it more difficult for people to appear on television or to appear on radio or to be quoted in the newspapers. Uh, but I think the first step is for the U.S. government to begin to wrestle with this question of what should be allowed in American discourse, um, what is you know, essentially uh, yelling fire in a movie theater. Um, there are metrics for this. It's not an easy thing, and I certainly can't imagine Democrats and Republicans agreeing on uh, these key principles at this moment, but I think that we should get started, uh, given what we know about the Brotherhood and other Islamist groups that have done grave damage to the United States. Thank you. Mr. Pipes, you gave a great overview of LCC turning on the, the Muslim Brotherhood. Could you please expand upon that? J.R. Pride asks, please explain LCC turning against the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, uh, Tantawi appointed CC as defense minister. As I mentioned, CC comes from a royal MB line. It was assumed that he would be loyal to the Muslim Brotherhood. For reasons that are not entirely clear, he turned against it. Uh, profound belief, tactical utility, personal glory, who knows? I can't pretend to understand his mind. I did write an article about one of his writings uh, some 10 years earlier before he became president. And it's elusive, it's not clear. But whatever his own motives were, he took advantage of this gigantic rejection 
on the streets of Egypt, estimated 25 million people out of a population four times that size, rejecting the Muslim Brotherhood government of Mohammed Morsi, and uh, came to power with huge support. Now that support has not remained so strong almost a decade later, but he has used that support to do his best to crush the Muslim Brotherhood with support of, as has been mentioned before, the Saudis, Emiratis. Uh, and it is no longer the force it used to be within Egypt. It would be surprising to me, and I'd be curious to hear Cynthia's views, but I would be surprised if it returned to its former prominence and power. Thank you. Cynthia, would you care to comment? Uh, yes, I, I completely agree with Dr. Pipes. Uh, the, the Muslim Brotherhood are the most hated group of human beings in Egypt. It's almost a curse word uh, to, to call someone a member of the Brotherhood. It's it's truly, truly atrocious. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't see it ever, ever happening again where they will get this type of support by the way, the Muslim Brotherhood operated for 80 years and the true number of their card-carrying members was half a million people out of 90 million at the time. It wasn't a popular, it was never as popular as it, as it pretended to be. It was because under Mubarak's regime, they were the official Kremlin-style opposition uh, sponsored and funded by Mubarak's regime that they were able to project this victimhood status. But they are the most hated group in, uh, in, in all of Egypt and uh, they will continue to be so because because they have not stopped. They have not stopped calls for terrorism. They have not stopped calls for assassination. They have not stopped uh, committing acts of terror in Sinai. So uh, they are. there's no way they're going to... Uh, the, uh, what worries me is what they're doing here. Now, that's where their resurrection is taking place. Absolutely. And Cynthia, you mentioned uh, there's a severance of ties in the bylaws. Is there any way to tell if someone has actually cut ties and adopted new attitudes? Y yes, yes, there absolutely is. I have uh, seven, uh, f f sorry, five ways uh, to determine whether someone is indeed a member of the Muslim Brotherhood or not. And all five need to be a uh, uh, available for someone to be considered a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, like, for example, I'll give you examples. Uh, if they uh, repetitively attend known Muslim Brotherhood uh, protests or conferences more than once, if they have intentionally appeared in self-admitted leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood in pictures, like, for example, the head of UC, uh, USCMO in the United States, Osama Jamal, constantly appears in pictures with Erdogan. That gives you an idea not only that he is a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, but also potentially very high up in the leadership. If, you, if I'm invited to dinner at uh, Buckingham Palace, it means I'm a head of state. It's not, it, you have to, so you can actually identify uh, even the relationship through the type of people they repetitively appear appear uh, in pictures with. Uh, also, another uh, way to uh, find out is when they are 100% adhering to the guidelines and discourse of the Muslim Brotherhood's uh, public bureau. Uh, they have very strict guidelines of what they are allowed to say and not to say. Uh, another way also uh, to identify them is through marital relationships. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood stated that they hide their uh, affiliations with 
uh, marital in their marital status. Like if you are a low level soldier, you would marry a woman that comes from a, a family in a low level uh, from low level soldiers. If she's a, if, if a member of the secret apparatus leadership would marry a woman from the a family that is involved in the secret apparatus leadership. It's very strict on who they should marry, when they should marry, and the where they stand in the positions in, in, in the organization. So when all these elements are available, not one of them, because I have one of my friends accidentally, uh, also one of the things is the how they spend their charity. One of my very good friends, I was talking to her while I was writing the book and she told me, what are you writing about? And I told her about terror funding. And she said, oh, which organization? And she's Muslim. So I told her, she said, oh, my God, I give these guys money. So you have Muslims that that truly do not know and can't comprehend the level of criminality of the Muslim Brotherhood. But when all these factors are available in one individual, you can then ask the question whether they are a member of the Muslim Brotherhood or not. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Sanja Sering asks, allies of the Muslim Brotherhood in Kashmir have held the political space hostage for decades. It is unfortunate that the U.S. government officials are often seen standing next to those Kashmiris who are close to the Muslim Brotherhood. Could you please comment on what needs to be done to educate uh, the officials, U.S. officials, about the downside of this alliance? So I think I think it's the same problem with not only with the Kashmiri uh, individuals who are allied with the Muslim Brotherhood or with the Egyptians who are allied with the Muslim Brotherhood. It's a broad problem. I have written uh, uh, like a, a peer review document that the Middle East published, uh, Middle East Forum published in 2008 that showed that people from individuals affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood from several countries and several nationalities were affiliated with uh, groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Al-Jamal Islamiyah were lobbying Congress. So it's only, that's only one little symptom of the broad pro problem that we all discussed. Uh, so I think it there has to be significant efforts to educate uh, staffers on the Hill and to educate lawmakers about uh, the dangers of the Muslim Brotherhood. I have placed nine, I have 900 45 footnotes so people can go and see the evidence themselves. I wish I was wrong. I want to be wrong. Life is better if I'm wrong. Uh, but you can examine uh, all this evidence yourself and uh, it applies across the board. Thank you so much. And a question from Halal Yenigan. Uh, can you say a few words about the Cold War era links between the U.S. government and the Muslim Brotherhood, especially through the activities and sponsorship by King Faisal's Muslim World League? Are they overrated or downplayed? That was an important connection. <clears throat> uh, American diplomats and politicians saw the Muslim Brotherhood in the late 40s as an ally against the Soviet Union. Pious Muslims must be against the atheist regime of Stalin. It was quite simple. Uh, there's a famous picture of Dwight Eisenhower when president receiving, I think in 1953, a group of Muslims, including the son-in-law, uh, Saeed Ramadan, of Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the movement. Uh, this was a close tie. If one wants to know more, I suggest the book, A Mosque in Munich, Nazis, the CIA, and the Rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in the West by Ian Johnson, came out, I think, in, 19, in 2010, that goes through step-by-step step the extraordinary ways in which the US government, the Federal Republic of Germany, and other governments after World War II allied with the Muslim Brotherhood and prompted up 
made the Western countries accessible to it, Munich, um, at a very important point. And uh, its legacy is what we're talking about today. Thank you. And before we go, can uh, anyone that wants to chime in just give us maybe a one minute synopsis of what you think we can better do to bring this existential threat to light for the Western legislators? Okay, so and I I have called it a policy. The, C, the State Department has been adopting a policy of dictatorship maintenance sin, since FDR. Um, this broad policy needs to be exposed and severed. Uh, the, it's not, it goes beyond supporting uh, traditional dictators. It goes as far as supporting dictatorial societal and religious and cultural norms. Um, so this has to be countered. Uh, and uh, that's my opinion. I'll just reiterate that uh, my my focus has always been about identifying the groups that have made the mistake of, uh, or maybe not the mistake, but have decided to openly engage uh, in, in violent activity. Uh, designating those as they occur, as we're able to document it, is important, but then not stopping there. Looking at their connections to other groups, uh, like-minded uh, Ikhwani groups, Muslim Brotherhood groups around the region, uh, there needs to be a constant uh, process of assessing these groups. This is something that needs to be prioritized at the State Department and the Treasury Department. Uh, it's a shame that we have not seen uh, a concerted effort to this end yet, but I do believe that it's possible to do this and to do it actually professionally and to do it well. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again for speaking with us. Uh, for our viewers, the book in discussion today was The Secret Apparatus, The Muslim Brotherhood's Industry of Death. The link can be found in the chat or in the reminder emails as well. All right. We really appreciate your time and uh, thank you all for joining us. For our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day. You too.